It's great to see everybody this morning. It's also great to see Connor. Connor's back from four weeks of leading uh, worship up at Hume SoCal. So he, over 1,200 students um, over these last four weeks that he has been leading. So it's great to have him back. Obviously, he's been here on the weekends, but he's been laboring away. And Allie as well has been laboring away with coffee up there as well. So um, some of you are here for the second time this morning. If you dropped off your students to go up to Hume Lake, we were here early. We loaded the bus at about 7 o'clock uh, or about 8 o'clock. We had check-in, and so we have 30 students going up, five leaders. And, um, you know, one of the cool things for me, and I, th- I think for our church, is putting kids on a bus to go up to Hume. Um, it's not just, hey, we have, there's, there's young people. Like, it's not just that. It's this idea that one of our core values is the idea that we anticipate that God will move. Like when we, when we put students on a bus, we do it not just because camp is fun, although camp is awesome and fun. We do it because we anticipate that God will get a hold of lives. And so we, we anticipate. It's why we even gather together, right? We come together because we're anticipating that God has something for us. We don't just do this because this is what I'm supposed to do as a Christian is go to church on Sunday. We do this because we anticipate that God is going to move. And whenever we sing a song or open our Bible, it's one of our core values here at Taft Avenue is that God is going to move. And so we anticipate that. And so what I want to do just as before we get into the word today, I just want to pray. One of the things about anticipating that God will move is that God, it will move us into a posture of prayer. With everything in our lives, when we're, when we're like, God's going to do something, like it moves us into prayer. And so as the bus is on its way up, I don't know, it's probably somewhere on the grapevine right now. Um, you know, I, we can check because my life 360, you know. Anyway, um, but let's pray that God will meet each and every one of those students and whatever God has for them, that God will meet them in a, in a unique and particular way this week. So let's pray together. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we just come this morning and we just want to acknowledge that you are, you are our Father and you want to work on this earth, that you want to partner with us, that you have a kingdom and you want your kingdom to come. And Father, we don't know exactly how that relates to those 30 students and five leaders on that bus, but we know you do. You have plans. And we pray that you would grab hold of hearts and lives and that because of this week that something for eternity might happen. That lives would be directed towards you and futures would be settled facing you. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, you see us, and you want to work in our lives. We open our hearts to you as well this morning. We're not on a bus on the way to camp, but we want to open ourselves up to you in the same way. And so we do that now, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So good. So good. So uh, we are in Psalm 23. This is our second week in Psalm 23. When I came to Psalm 23, you guys know my heart and what I wanted to do, my goal when I hit Psalm 23 is don't mess it up. Psalm 23 is beloved, right? It is, it is if, if you were to ask somebody who may or may not know church or may or may not know the Bible or may or may not know God, if you asked, name a psalm, they would probably say Psalm 23. It's the, 
one of the most beloved, if not the most beloved psalms in the Bible. And so my job, like, like we could read this, we could, like I said last week, we could read it, and we could anticipate with no comment that it would sustain us through the week, right? Because it's not, it is sustained Jewish and Christian spirituality for over 3,000 years. And so sometimes we think about commenting on it, like we, commenting on it sounds a little pretentious, but I have some thoughts and reflections, and hopefully they'll be helpful as we think about this psalm, this beloved, well-known psalm. I think as we kind of review and we go back to what we talked a little bit about last week is this idea, and again, we don't want to bury the lead, just want to come right out and say it, the main point of Psalm 23, the main point of Psalm 23, even if you didn't, you could read through it and there's a lot of things in there, but just structurally speaking in Hebrew, it is 58 words long, 58 words long, 58, 50, sorry, 56 words long, and right smack in the middle, you got 28 words into it, there's two Hebrew words. In, he, in English, it's four words, but in Hebrew, it's two words. And the main point of the psalm is right in the middle, 28 words in, 28 words to go, those first two words of the second 28 words, and the, the, what it says is, you are with me. You are with me. If there's anything that Psalm 23 is trying to say, what the psalmist is trying to say, it is this, it is you are with me. And the beautiful thing is about that is you are with me is not necessarily a theological statement. Like if we were just making a declaration, we would say, we would say God is with me. That's a nice theological statement. God is with me. God is with you. But when you put the word you on that, you talk to God and you say you are with me, it, doesn't, it goes beyond being a theological statement. It becomes a prayer. And Psalm 23, if there's anything about Psalm 23, it is meant to shepherd us, right, toward this statement. It's meant to shepherd us towards this statement where we would say, you are with me. Would you just say it with me right now on the count of three? One, two, three. You are with me. Look, my, as I was thinking about this, you can get up and you can talk theology and we can talk about what God is like and what Jesus is like and what Jesus has done and we can do that and that's a good thing for us to do. That For me, I'm a pastor, that's what I do, right? But what my ultimate hope is, is that when you leave this, this room and you leave this place, that a phrase like that would stay on your lips, like, I can't pray on your, I can pray on your behalf, I can pray for you, but I can't pray for you, right? Like, that's something that we all do on our own. And so, this idea of shepherding us toward this, you are with me, it's my heart that as we hear this psalm, we hear every bit of it, that every bit of it would lead us back to this idea that we would stop during our day and simply pray, you are with me. Psalm 23 takes us there. So again, that's the main point. I don't want, it's not a reveal at the end, like, ta-da, here it is. This is the main, I just want to put it up front. And so as we hear the rest of this, as we hear these reflections, that's what I want us to filter all of this through. You guys with me? All right, you have your Bibles? All right, let's open up to Psalm 23. Let's open up to Psalm 23 and let's take a look at it. 56 words in Hebrew, it's 113 words in English, um, 
we, you lose a little bit of that, um, that conciseness there. But as, we, as we've gone through this before, as we start, it starts, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That was last week. We talked about that last week. And we also talked about the idea that sometimes something that's so beloved over the years, over millennia, can sometimes start to become familiar, right? And that things that are familiar to us can sometimes lose their punch. We can forget about it. Like your, your wife, your spouse, beautiful, but every day you, for, you forget, you take that for granted, right? Or maybe your husband, he's strapping and awesome and handsome, but you see him every day, you're like, you kind of take it for granted. That's like Psalm 23, the beautiful, happy, uh, uh, strapping, handsome spouse that sometimes we're just like, ah, oh, well, Psalm 23 is there. Like, I know what it says. And we can take it for granted. It can become a little trite to us. But what we want to do today is, is re- hear it fresh. And so what last week we did was we took those first few lines and we paraphrased them. And let's just hear, hear the paraphrase again. Jesus shepherds me. I will be content. He lays me down in a place of fresh growth. He escorts me to waters of rest. And he sets upright my cast soul. As we just think about, obviously it's not, it's easier to memorize, you know, what is what's a little more concise, but as we think about this, as we hear it afresh, we want these words to come with new life. We want God's word, which is alive, to feel alive to us. And so there's a little bit of that, and we'll be paraphrasing a little bit more as we go through this and we continue on. And we're in verse 3. So we did, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And we begin now in the second half of verse 3 where it says, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And of course, as we've been walking through this, we've been noting certain parallels to what shepherding does with sheep and that we don't necessarily live in a society where everybody sees sheep and shepherds. How many people have seen sheep this weekend? See, because you went to the fair, right? But for most of us, for most of us, we don't have sheep grazing in our neighborhoods, right? If you do, I, you might not. I don't know. It is orange. I mean, orange can have that, I suppose. But um, no laughs on that. Okay, that's okay. Um, but we don't always see this. And so sometimes these, these analogies, the metaphor of sheep and shepherd are lost to us in our modern world. And so part of this is coming back to the idea of what is this overarching metaphor of God being with us as a shepherd and we his sheep. And so let's talk a little bit about paths of righteousness. So just in case you hadn't heard a lot about sheep, sheep can be a little bit dull. They're a little bit like, like, is there anything going, like they can be a little, they need shepherding, let's put it straight. Like, and that's what we're compared to. So I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want anybody to feel bad, but, um, and I certainly, bad, thank you. I was not, all right, I hear that. I love that. Okay, but a little bit about about sheep, okay? Um, Sheep need to change pastures and rotate in different pastures, and here's why. 
Sheep will often, when they graze, they will eat the grass, and they'll keep eating the grass all the way down, not just to eating all the grass, but they will eat also and pull out the roots and eat the roots of the grass. And what happens is if sheep stay too long in a pasture, they will eat all of the edible growth, leaving simply dirt and dust. And of course, that would mean that the field then would only grow then weed. And it would just be dust and weeds. And so what you need in a good shepherd and sheep, because they're just eat, 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 they need to be moved on into different pastures. They need to be rotated. And, without, and sometimes the other thing about when sheep eat a lot, the other thing that sheep do is they poop. And if sheep are in a pasture too long, the grass starts to disappear and the poop starts to pile up. And what will happen is sheep will not move on on their own. This sounds like a whole other sermon that I need to preach, that, that we just walk around in places with no nourishment and we walk around in our own poop, right? Like this, 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 this is a little bit of the human condition, is it not? Okay, we'll, ta- we'll, see, we'll save that one for another day. But sh- so sheep, the land and the sheep, the, the land needs a rest from the sheep, and the sheep need to move on because if they just stay there, there's parasite and disease and all this stuff, and they need to be in a place of nourishment. So in order to go from one pasture land to another pasture land, they need to find an appropriate path. And here, and sometimes, especially in the spring and the summer, what will happen is you will take the sheep from the lowland up to the highland where there's new fresh growth, and sometimes that involves a longer drive of sheep herds. Even, in, even if you're staying in a local place, it might be a, a, ma- a matter of like 10, 15, 20, 25 miles where you might drive the sheep to another pasture. And in order to do that, a good shepherd will find a good, reliable path. And here we see... That in our passage, it says that he leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, the term righteousness, righteous, the word righteous in Hebrew has a lot of meanings. It can mean, um, it can mean right or just or accurate. It can even mean loyal. Righteousness can also mean salvation. It can mean justice. And so when we hear paths of right, he leads me on paths of righteousness, this could imply that he leads me on the right paths, he leads me on reliable paths, or he leads me on the sort of paths that someone who has experienced salvation would go on. That these are paths of righteousness. And I think most generally as we hear this, that he leads me or he guides me on the right paths. And so as we think about a shepherd driving sheep or shepherding sheep, we also, again, we we come back to this idea that God is our shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, or we understand Jesus calls himself the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Jesus is my shepherd and Jesus guides. So this first thing is that he guides me on these right paths And this brings up something that we made note of last week, and that is the nature of God, the nature of Jesus and his relationship with us. That sometimes, and I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes as I'm going through my life, my days, the seasons of my life, that sometimes I look around and I'm kind of like, you know, sometimes you ever go whale watching 
And like, whale, if you go whale watching, if, if you're in good shape, like if you, if you have a good day whale watching, like you see the whale come up and you can see the psh, right? But if you go whale watching, like you see a whale and it comes up psh, and you're like, oh, there it is, there it is. And then it goes down. And you're like on the boat and you're like, where'd it go? Like sometimes that's the way it is with God, is it not, in our lives? Like you're in a season where it's like, psh, hey, there's God. Psh, hey, God's doing something. Psh, hey, God's doing something. And then you go through a little season where you're like, where'd he go? Like I'm waiting, I'm waiting to see the psh. I'm waiting for a little encouragement, Lord. You're like, where'd he go? And this is the thing about that he leads us on paths of righteousness. That, that sometimes we feel like maybe God is just up there and he's just kind of watching. Right? He's just kind of seeing how you're going to do. And, he's kind of, and our image of God is that he's up there and he's kind of like watching. He's just like, all right, let's see, let's see, let's see what young squirt will do. Right? Let's see what they will do. Let's see what my sheep will do. But the image that we get in Psalm 23 is not that God watches us. The Lord is my watcher. Or the Lord, the Lord sees me. It's not just the Lord sees me. It says the Lord shepherds me. And this is, the, this is probably the most important thing that we can get out of this, is this idea that God is not a distant watcher. That what we see in this psalm is that God is in the business of guiding. God is in the business of of guiding. He's not in the business of simply watching to see how, it's not like he's this whale who's gone down deep, and you're like, where'd you go? Like, I'm waiting for you to come up for air. That God is available. You are with me. And the way this psalm, this psalm uses all these verbs to describe not only the nearness of God, but the activity of God in shepherding. That it starts with this idea, the Lord shepherds me. It says next that he, he lays me down. It says then that he leads me beside the waters. And we noted last week that even the term that he restores my soul is this guiding image that he turns me over. Like if I'm cast and my legs are in the air, my soul, I can't move, I've fallen and I can't get up. That's what cast means. That what he does is he takes us and he turns us so that we can get on our feet. Then he rubs us so that we get the, the, the circulation going again. That this is the guidance, the leading that he provides. And then what he says here is it's, it's, it's partially this idea that he leads me on paths of righteousness. But this idea that he guides me, he guides me on paths of righteousness. God is not distant. God is not simply watching. God is not simply like, well, let's see what they do. How dumb can they be today? That's not what God is about. God is like, hey, 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 we're going this way. His little call, his staff. We'll talk about the staff in just a second. But he leads me. He guides me. I think this is one of the most important things that we can, we can enter into in our life of faith. If we, if we have faith in Jesus and a life of faith, a life of faith is a life of responding to the guidance that God provides for us. And sometimes we might not think about it, and it might sound a little bit, a little woo-woo to you, 
as it has to me in the past, when you talk about, you hear people say, well, God told me to do this, and we see all kinds of bad examples of that. Like, we see examples of people saying, well, God told me to do that, and that's like, give me a million dollars. Like, God told me. So, you know, like, that's, that's not the point, and we see all, all kinds of bad examples of that. People manipulating using God's, God, God as a means of manipulating, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the idea that in the scriptures, a life of faith is a life of receiving guidance from God. A life of receiving guidance. Psalm 23 is all about guidance. God is shepherding us. And of course, uh, hearing God, this idea that God gives cues to us, that God brings passages to mind, he might impress thoughts. There's a number of ways, and, and we'll, when we get to, um, we're going to do in the fall, we're going to do the Gospel of John, and we'll eventually get to John chapter 10, and we'll talk about the idea of hearing the shepherd's voice, and we'll spend a little bit more time talking about that. But just, just in, as we, as we kind of take a little uh, spot here, and we, we just kind of pause, um, there's three real ways that God speaks to us or guides us. I think the first way that probably all of us are very comfortable with, um, if you're here at Taft Avenue Community Church and you put your faith in Jesus, you're probably very familiar with, um, to some degree, with the Bible and that we are a church and a denomination that, that values God's word as, if not a, a, a means of God speaking to us, but a primary means of God speaking to us that God has spoken in his word, and the Bible that God reveals himself and his desire for humans generally in the scriptures. And he guides. And so reading our Bibles will give us a sense of some of the guidance that God offers. And I think also that in that, that in certain times and moments of our lives, as we have read God's word, that God will bring certain things, bring certain passages back to mind to us in particular moments. That the more we are immersed in God's word, I would even say, even as we memorize certain passages, that it gives God um, ways in which, in the moment, he can bring something, bring a passage, bring something that we've read back to our minds in a moment to guide us in a particular moment. The Bible reveals God to us. He guides us in that. But also... We might also note that God can guide us by means of the circumstances of our lives. That God, as we are moving in a certain direction in our life, God might put up a number of barriers like, we're not going that way. Like, hey, Craig, I know you want to go that way. We're not going that way. Like, we're going to close that door. We're going to close that window, and we're going to close off every other thing. We're just going to close that. Now, you might want to try to run through it, but I'm just going to close the next one, too. Like, sometimes that's what God does, that God will close doors for us. Or, circumstances of our life, that God might open opportunities to us. Like, I wasn't looking for an opportunity, but this opportunity opened for me, and it seems like it's right in line with Scripture, and I like these people, and they're awesome, and so I'm going to walk down this road. That God will open doors, or he'll close doors, and that's one way that God, as a shepherd, will guide us. It's kind of like when we think about, later on in the passage, it says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So the rod is, the, the rod is there to protect, like the rod is to beat predators over the head with, or like a throwing club, like, anyway. But the staff, 
The staff with this little crook on the end, the staff is meant to gently grab sheep and pull them close, gently. It's not, the, the staff is, the rod is for beating, right? The staff is for guiding. And the staff you can either guide by pulling closer or pushing away. And that's oftentimes the way that we, under, that we can see God guiding us in our lives. Has anybody ever experienced that before? That God will open a door or maybe close a door? Maybe it's even just against what you want, too. I mean, it's awesome when you're like, my, I want this, and God opens a door, and that's awesome, right? But God will use circumstances. He'll use the Bible to guide us. He'll also use circumstances to guide us. But the other thing about this, and I, I want to just make this point because it, it, it fits with Psalm 23, that there's also a third way that God guides us, and that is... Um, it's a more subjective guidance, but it is this idea of that God will, his voice will guide us, that he will speak to us. Now, I would just say this, I don't feel like I've ever heard an audible voice from the Lord, okay? I know other people who, who feel like they have heard an audible voice, okay? But I will say this, there are times in my life where I feel like God, by means of his Holy Spirit, who indwells every believer, has put certain thoughts into my mind out of the blue. Certain, someone's, people's names will come to mind in a certain situation. And it'll be like, hey, you need to pray for this person. Or, or there might be a certain, uh, uh, like I said, a certain passage might come to mind. Or there might be a certain word that comes into my mind. Or something, sometimes it's just a, a, a slow pressure. You feel like God is actually, there are times where you might feel like God is actually pushing you in a direction. Your rod and your staff. But what's interesting about the issue of the voice and with the shepherd, for the shepherd, the voice is a significant tool of guidance. See, Palestinian shepherds are not like Australian shepherds. If you're an Australian shepherd, what do you use? Sheepdogs, right? Send the sheepdog. You guys see Babe, the movie Babe with the pig? Come on, everybody. You got to see Babe. It's a great movie, right? But the sheepdogs, they run around the sheep and they, they round them all up. Look, in Palestine and in the Middle East and in Africa, they don't round up sheep with dogs. Dogs are, dogs are dangerous, like, you don't have dogs. What you have is sheep will follow the shepherd. They will follow after the shepherd. The, the shepherd, it's the butcher herds, the shepherd leads. And so what will happen is sheep will begin to recognize the particular call or sound or voice of the shepherd. George Adam Smith, in the 19th century, uh, or early 20th century, was in Palestine, and he wrote this, the historical geography of the Holy Land, and he, and he says this. He says, Sometimes we enjoyed our noonday rest beside one of the Judean wells, to which three or four shepherds would come down with their flocks. The flocks mixed all together, and we wondered how each shepherd would get his own again. But after the watering and the playing were over, the shepherds one by one went up to different sides of the valley and each called out his own peculiar call. And the sheep of each drew out of the crowd to their own shepherd one by one and the flocks passed away as orderly as they came. 
a particular sound or a particular call, Jesus will say in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. That word for voice is also the word for sound. Do you know the sound of the Lord? Our shepherd has a particular way of calling, a particular way of getting our attention, a particular way of guiding. Maybe you have a dog at home, like sometimes Buddy. You guys all know Buddy, right? Sometimes with Buddy, Buddy will run out into the garage, and you, if you say, you say, Buddy, and if he doesn't turn around, like a little snap of the fingers, Buddy will be like, you know, Buddy knows the sound, the sound of the master, right? This is the way sheep are. In, in this image, in this metaphor, when God says, when, when the psalmist says, the Lord shepherds me, it implies that we as sheep have become familiar with the sound of the shepherd. And it allows the shepherd, well, to shepherd us. It allows him to say, we should lie down here. We should eat here. We should drink here. This is the right path. Follow me. The sound of the shepherd. Look, I, I, I feel like, to be, to be quite honest, in, in, my, in my life of faith in evangelical Christianity, I don't feel like there has been near enough teaching up sober teaching about this aspect of a life of faith, of simply following, not just from the Bible, but in the moment, following the cues of the shepherd. And again, I don't want to get woo-woo on this, and I would just say this, and we don't have time to go all the way into it, but the best book that I've ever read on the subject, there's lots of good books out there, but Dallas Willard has written a book, it's called Hearing God. And it's the most measured, it's the most measured, conservative, evangelical approach and, and treatment of this idea of how do I recognize the voice of God and his cues in my life? I would very much, I want to revisit this. This is something that I think is absolutely necessary for us because if God is with us all the time and we're out and about and he has a kingdom out there and he wants to advance his kingdom how else would he advance his kingdom if not to be able to talk to his sheep, to talk to his people, to talk to his children while they are out and about? Not simply sitting in a pew. The goal, obviously, I hope that we come and we have an interaction and an encounter with God when we come together, we anticipate that. But I, I hope that this idea that we would walk out into this world and anticipate that God would move in our lives in the very moments of our interactions day to day. And so it's one of the things for me that I definitely want as we move into this next year to imagine this idea that you are with me and you are guiding me. And that we might pay attention to what God might want to do in that. So this is a bit of a precursor on that. This is not the last word on guidance, but it, it certainly is something that I want to pay attention to as we move into the fall. Because I do believe that God wants to guide us through his word, through the circumstances of our life, but also to simply speak to us, to nudge us, to move us, to take his staff and say, hey, let's go this way. Come close to me. 
And we'll see as we move on into verse 4. Yeah, this is all one verse. It's, not, it's like half a verse, so you're welcome. So like, <laughs> we're spending a lot of time on half of a verse. But we're going to get into verse 4. This is going to make a, a, a difference as we move into the next verse. So he leads me in paths of righteousness or another way. Let's say that together. Let's say, let's say that together. He leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Or here's the paraphrase. Say it after me. He guides me onto the right paths. Say it together. He guides me onto the right paths. So verse 4. Verse 4 says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You know, the lore of Psalm 23, especially if you've memorized it, King James, but almost every translation when it comes to this, uh, this verse, it refers to the valley of the shadow of death. And in 200 BC, when the Hebrew Old Testament was translated into Greek, in Greek it says the valley of the shadow of death. It, it's word for word for what it says in Greek. In Hebrew, it's interesting because it doesn't actually say, doesn't actually refer to death in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word is uh, tsalmawet, and it's, it's less about death, and the, the verb, it's the valley, it's the valley of, it's less about death, and it's more about darkness. Tsalmawet, the valley is one of deep darkness. The lexicon also says it's, it's like the valley of impenetrable gloom. Another translation might be it's the valley of pitch black. It's like the combination of pitch black and fog. Anybody? Like it's, it's where you can't see your hand in front of your face but you know there's other things out there that are come to get you. The worst fog I've ever been in, um, I mean, there's fog around here, but f- fog is not so bad if you don't need to get somewhere, right? Like you wake up in the morning, you look out your window, and it's like, hey, it's foggy. Oh, it's, it's foggy. You're drinking your coffee. Foggy. This is awesome. Foggy. But like if you're trying to get somewhere, fog is horrible. The worst fog I've ever been in is through Bakersfield on the 99 when the Thule fog comes in. Has anybody ever been in that? You're on the 99, you just come down off the grapevine, and you just, sometimes when you're on the, when you're on the grapevine, you're just gonna, you're going into this bank of fog. And you get down in it, and sometimes it's so bad you can barely see one reflector in front of you. And when you're going like 55, like I wish I was going 55. If you're going 75, like even that's a little slow for me, sorry. True, true confessions, right? But if you see that, like one reflector ahead, you're just trying to keep up with the, with the running lights of the car in front of you, not close enough that you hit them, but close enough so you don't lose them, so you know where the road is, right? The valley of impenetrable fog. The darkest darkness I've ever been. Like, you can go, look, you can go in caves or whatever. But, like, again, darkness is not bad unless you're trying to get somewhere. 
maybe the darkest darkness I've ever been in where I needed to get somewhere. Um, over, when I was in college, I would work at Hume Lake Christian Camps, and one of the jobs that I did um, on a few weeks was um, what they called back in, it was night guest services. It was guest services at night. So we called it night accommodations, night accommo. And night accommo would meet, uh, we'd start work at 6 p.m., and at, we would, so this is when everybody would be either in meetings or they would go be going to their cabins. And so we would vacuum, you know, places where when there's a thousand students, you can't do this vacuuming in like the chapel or in, uh, uh, in, in the dining hall or places like that, cleaning toilets and cleaning all these other places. And so it would be great because we would, you know, we would get, I, I liked it because we would get lunch at like midnight and they would make a special lunch in the dining hall. It was always pretty nice. But, but the thing about this was you would get off work at 2 a.m., and I don't know if you've ever been in the, in the high Sierras at 2 a.m. Okay? Now, when the moon's out, look, when the moon's out, the moon, like a full moon is awesome because it lights everything up. But there are nights where there's no moon. And if you've ever been in a place where there's, all the lights are off in camp, everything's, and you have to, you end work and you're way out, you're kind of out in the woods at the accommodations center and you've got to walk back to where you, where you live, where you sleep, and it's about, maybe about a half mile walk, but, you, but it's at 2 a.m., no one's up, no moon, and I just remember uh, you're, you're with this kind of group of people and you can't even see the person next to you. And you're walking and all you can think is, am I actually on the road? Or am I going to run into a tree? Like you're walking like this. And all you can hear is people around you and then your mind, when you're in darkness, right? When you're in darkness, your mind starts to do stuff. Like there's, there's animals out there that can see better than me and are coming after me. Bears, raccoons are the worst. But they're not aggressive, okay? Unless they're rabbit and then you have another problem. Okay, but hold, here's the idea. So that, imagine pitch black and tule fog. That's the valley. It's the valley of deep darkness. And maybe the valley of the shadow of death is significant, but there might be some of us here today that would note that there are places that are maybe worse than death. It might feel worse to be lost while alive. Lost in an impenetrable darkness surrounded by who knows what. And sometimes we find in our lives, we find ourselves in a season of disorientation spiritually, wanting desperately to make progress on a journey, but it is simply an impenetrable deep darkness that we find ourselves in and we don't know how to get out. And worse yet, we don't even know, not only do we not know how to get out, we don't know how to get through. You know, whatever that is, we talked about that, that is a season of disorientation. We might find ourselves in a season of disorientation. Sometimes, spiritually, my own sin can take me into that season of deep darkness. Or maybe I find myself that someone else has sinned against me and it takes me into a season of deep darkness. Or maybe we live 
in a world where the circumstances of a fallen world come to bear in our lives. There are obviously some in this room or maybe even watching remotely that are living with an illness and it feels like a valley of deep darkness. Maybe some are living with broken relationships with your children and it feels like an impenetrable gloom or a broken relationship with your spouse. I know that some of you have had to bury a son or a daughter and the grief has been deep and dark and profound. And you have passed through the valley of deep darkness. Some, even today, you might feel like presently you are in a season of deep darkness. Or maybe you're here and you maybe sense that there is a season on the horizon. And when the psalmist writes this, the psalmist is saying, I have been to that valley. I have been in the middle of the impenetrable fog. And even though I walk through the valley of deep darkness, I will fear no evil because you are with me. How does the psalmist know? How does the psalmist know that the shepherd is with him in the deep darkness? He can't see a thing. He knows the sound of the shepherd. He knows the feel of the staff. He recognizes the footfalls next to him. Even in the valley of deep darkness, you are with me. The psalmist is saying this is not someone who has simply experienced all orientation in their life. This is someone who has walked through the valley, come out the other side, but also notices that there is trouble all around and I could be going through that valley again. The Lord is my shepherd. I can be content. I've been to that valley and if I go back, I will know that you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The valley of deep darkness This psalm says someone else has gone there before you. This psalm says that if you find yourself in the valley of deep darkness, the Lord is with you. And I think probably Psalm 23, one of the reasons why it is so beloved, that it is sustained for millennia, is because of this very fact, because the people who read it are either anticipating the valley or are entering into the valley or coming out of the valley, but the psalmist says, I've been there before and the Lord is with me yet even still. His rod and his staff are there. His rod will beat away any evil. I will fear no evil. His staff will guide me. I will not have to worry if I'm on the right path. The Lord will guide me. The shepherd will guide me. He is not just watching me walk through the valley. He is with me in the valley. He won't necessarily take me out of the valley, but he will lead me through the valley. Even though I walk 
through the valley of deep darkness, of impenetrable darkness, I will fear no evil. You are with me. And that's the main point, the main point of Psalm 23. That's the, that's the line. That, that's, you know, that's the money shot right there. And it comes at the darkest point of the psalm, you are with me. It's the whole reason the psalm was written. You are with me. Why would God take us into the valley of impenetrable fog? I guess this is the thing. Like, you know, because earlier in the psalm, it's like, you lead me in paths of righteousness. This is awesome. God leads me on all my paths. And yeah, this path go through, goes through the deepest darkness. Like, you might think, oh, I got off the path and I went through the valley of deep darkness. No, God is taking you through the valley of deep darkness. Like, that's the path. That's the right path. You're like, why? Why would he take me on that path? Why would he do that to me? Are you listening more intently to him? Are you recognizing things about the Lord that you might not have recognized before? Are you longing for his guidance? Sometimes God will do that. Sometimes God will take us into the valley of deep and impenetrable darkness to tune the other senses. You can walk by sight all you want. Hebrews says, faith is not walking by sight, it's what is unseen. And sometimes God, in his severe mercy, will take us into the valley of deep darkness. I don't entirely understand it, and it's hard to talk about when you're in it, and I certainly don't want to talk about it glibly. But there are times where God will say, I want my sheep to listen to me, and the best place for them to learn to listen to me is in this valley. I'm going to invite the prayer team, or prayer team, maybe we should have the prayer team come up. Uh, let's have, let's have the, the worship team come on up. But one of the most, I think one of the most significant things that we can do, whether you are wrestling through a valley, or whether you are coming out, or whether even you are thinking that maybe there's one on the horizon, Maybe the most significant thing about this psalm is that the valley of deep darkness is followed by, you prepare a table before me. And one of the things that we want to recognize is that Jesus has prepared. Jesus is the fulfillment of this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, Jesus shepherds me. When we think about the Lord prepares a table before me, Jesus has prepared a table before us. The night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it. And he said, do this in remembrance of me, that we remember him and that we come. Even if we are walking through the deep valley, even if we are walking, we don't know what is next. He invites us to this table to participate. He prepares a table before us, even in the presence of our enemies, even in the presence of evil. He might prepare a table for us. 